We're going to read this morning from Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. Will you turn in your Bibles with me? Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. And Jesus is speaking, and he says, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, who here has seen the movie Ocean's Eleven? Yeah, good. More, more than first service, unless they were just shy. Either the Rat Pack version, the George Clooney remake. I know this is a strange thing for a pastor to admit, but I like a good heist movie. Um, the more ridiculous, the better. The Ocean's movies, the, the Italian job, in, Inception, they basically all follow the same format. The first half of the movie involves three main parts. They identify a target, they assemble a team, and they create a plan. The second part of the movie is the best. When the, the planning is all done and the team's together and the preparation's in place and it's time to pull off the heist. And that's where things get really exciting. And the movie pivots from preparation to action. At that point, a good director will have us feeling a sense of suspense. We've watched scenes that we understand, things that will go directly into pulling off the heist. We've watched scenes that we don't understand, puzzle pieces that we wonder how will fit into the, the whole picture. And we learn later that there are pieces in play that they've kept from us, surprises that are down the road, twists and turns, details that will be revealed later, which will answer the question that we're about to ask, how did they do that? The second part of the movie is where we find ourselves in this passage. The preparation is complete. There are some pieces that make sense, others that don't yet make sense, but they will, and questions that we don't even know we should be asking. The law, the prophets, they've been pointing to this time. They are the preparation. The key player, the Messiah, is about to start the job, and we await the details of how the story will come together. But of course, this isn't a heist. This is better than a heist, more powerful than a heist. This is a revolution, and Jesus is the victor that the revolution has been waiting for. Revolution, what does revolution entail? Think of the energy that moves through people who are entirely fed up with the status quo, with the way things are, and who are ready to give themselves over to be a part of a change. Think of the ways they inspire one another as they take risks in order to pursue a world that is more just than the one that they're living in. Not all revolution is violent. I, I think of those who march peacefully, even as violence is enacted against them. 
but who are so dedicated that they persist. Jesus is not here to lead a rebellion. He's here to lead a revolution. The old broken ways of living will be defeated in him and the kingdom that is to come will become a reality that is something we are invited to live into. And so when Jesus says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He's saying, I am not here to undo everything that has been done. I'm not here to counter all that you have known. I'm here to complete it. I am the missing piece. And the whole story, creation, exodus, law, judges, kings, prophets, have been pointing to me the whole time. I am what you've been waiting for. I am the fulfillment of the promises that God has made to your ancestors. And now you are invited to join my work of turning an upside down world right side up. This is important for us to understand if we're to grasp what Jesus is speaking about as he talks about being salt and light because while there are contemporary implications for today's age, it was originally addressed to a crowd that surrounded Jesus 2,000 years ago. And if we can hear the words according to their circumstances and their ears, maybe we can hear it according to ours as well. Jesus is speaking primarily to a Jewish audience, and he's just spoken the powerful words of the Beatitudes, and now he turns to the call that God has placed on Israel. Israel was to be the salt of the earth, but Israel was behaving like everyone else in ways that are perhaps painfully familiar today. In fact, I want to describe the circumstances of Israel to you, and, and I invite you to listen and see if those circumstances maybe lend themselves to ways that we might hear Jesus' words for today. How similar is their time from ours? Israel argued about power and played politics. It squabbled internally while dividing into factions. It compromised its mission for convenience and political expediency. The Sadducees were known as a wealthy class who compromised with Roman authorities in order to retain their wealth and privilege and temple rights. Israel dreamed of military rebellion, a rebellion that differed greatly from the revolution Jesus was bringing. They trusted in their own righteousness. The Pharisees were committed to the law with the hope that if they could perfectly keep the law, it would usher in the age of the Messiah. God would act according to human righteousness. Can you imagine if God wanted to change the world through his people, but they were too busy dividing themselves into camps to debate the politics of their day? That's a stretch for us, right? That doesn't happen today. Yeah, I hear you laughing. Or if God trusted in, if God's people trusted in their own piety rather than God's goodness. If we were aware of such a situation, I am certain it's difficult for us to imagine a situation like this, but if we were to imagine a situation like that, if we were aware of it, we'd probably say it was a shame that so much passion was wasted on such frivolous distractions when passion could be redirected for use in the kingdom of God. We might point out that these debates not only waste our passion, but they damage our witness. If we ever experience something like what was taking place in Jesus' time, it might be cause for concern. The main function of salt in the ancient world was not to season food. They didn't put it on to enhance the flavor. The main function of salt was to preserve. 
How could God keep the world from going bad if Israel, his chosen salt, had lost its distinctive purpose? Or if we're talking about today, rather than Israel, we might say, what if the followers of Christ lost their distinctive purpose to be ambassadors of the throne of Jesus? What if rather than participating in the realities of heaven while we are on earth, we squabbled with one another about frivolous things, worship preferences and political agendas and power struggles and biased opinions? What if we let our fears dictate our behaviors rather than allowing our faith in Christ to shape our lives? And from our fears and discomforts and uncertainties, what if we lashed out at one another? We would be like salt that has lost its saltiness. God has, since the first pages of Scripture, called His people to be a people of divine order and restoration. We are to be agents of worship, bringing the order of heaven to earth. When Jesus speaks of salt losing his saltiness, he's pointing to the painful realities that God's people are not fulfilling their intended purpose, but serving their own interests rather than serving God. And Jesus is warning of the pitfalls that his disciples will face if we lose our focus or our interest in the revolution and instead live without the hope of a world that is being restored through Christ. If we settle in and maintain the status quo, the danger is that we may lose the capacity to embrace and enact the ways of the kingdom of God by forgetting that we are called to disrupt the status quo. We are called to disrupt the status quo, to serve the ways of God's kingdom by valuing those who are oppressed, by caring for those who suffer loss, by seeking to do justice and show mercy by having integrity, being peacemakers, and courageously living in ways that are consistent with the gospel of Jesus. Disciples who do not enact the ways of the kingdom will be like salt that has lost its purpose. In the same way God called Israel to be the light of the world, Israel was the people through whom God intended to shine its, his bright light into the world's dark corners. Not simply to overcome evil, but to enable people who are lost in the dark to find their way. But what if the people called to be light bearers had become a part of the darkness? What if they got lost just like everyone else? Jerusalem, the, the city on a hill, was supposed to be a beacon of hope to the world. The followers of Jesus in his day and in our day are supposed to be a beacon of hope to the world. But instead of a beacon of hope, how often are we drawn into the world's fights? How much of our lives do we allow to be accessed by our King? How much of our efforts do we give over to the Jesus revolution? And how much passion is spent serving the purposes of His kingdom? Are we concerned with being light in a dark world, or do we squabble over things that remain in the darkness? Are we focused on the ways of Jesus, or are we distracted by the ways of the world? Is the Jesus way still revolutionary in 2021? And if the answer is yes, and I believe it is, then the next question to ask is, is the way of Jesus still revolutionary in my life? Or have I settled in the status quo? Now imagine the crowd around Jesus. This is early in his ministry. He's just been baptized. He's started preaching. He's called his disciples. He's healed the sick. He shared his very first message, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Turn away from what is broken and seek God's kingdom. He's taught the Beatitudes 
and he's called his followers to be salt and light in the world. What must people be thinking at this point? It's, it's not as if they haven't seen all of this before. They've had lots of would-be messiahs, plenty of would-be prophets, lots of false teachers. So I think if I were in the crowd that day, I would be asking, okay, what's the deal with the new guy? Here's another teacher, someone who thinks they have the answers. We've already got the law. We've got the prophets. We've, we've got interpreters of those things, experts of those things, the Pharisees who think they have the law all figured out and that their interpretation is correct, teachers of the law with varying perspectives and approaches. What is special about Jesus? In the introduction of the, the book that we're reading as a church right now, by the way, it asks the same question. What makes following Jesus unique? And Jesus addresses this question with the crowd around him. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, it's important that we read this well. Jesus doesn't say, I've not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to keep them or to be aligned to them. He says, I have come to fulfill them. What Jesus is telling us is that the story of God from Genesis to the moment that they are sharing on the side of that mountain as Jesus preaches this sermon has all been leading to this. Jesus is not just another teacher. He is not just another would-be Messiah. He is the solution to all the world's problems. Through him, all that is wrong will be set right. Everything that God has been doing up until this time has not just been pointing to a Messiah, but to this very Messiah that God would come to earth in Jesus has been the plan from the beginning. This new teacher is God in the flesh, although he does not say those words to the crowd that day, but what he tells them is quite enough. He says, I am the fulfillment of the story that you have been told. In me, all that you hope for will come to pass. And from the benefit of our vantage point, we can say even more than that. Not only is Jesus what the whole story has been pointing to in his day, but the kingdom is what the whole of creation is pointing to in our day. The thing that makes following Jesus unique is that we are enlisted as agents of a revolution, a revolution which our lives are given over to as we worship our king and pursue his kingdom. The revolution does not call us to gather up arms or use force to overcome evil with evil or to make enemies of those who oppose us. This revolution is enacted through love through sacrifice, through generosity, through compassion. The unique thing about following Jesus is that it isn't just another religion. It isn't just another belief system, and it doesn't cling to or rely on power. Following Jesus is about surrender, and it's about becoming people whose lives reflect the ways of his kingdom. We are not merely followers of a religion or keepers of status quo, we are participants in a revolution. Which is why Jesus says, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees have been dedicated to the arrival of the Messiah, but they have not known the ways of the Messiah. They have kept the law, but they have also kept the status quo. And the kind of followers Jesus is looking for are not keepers of the status quo but partakers in a revolution. When that realization hits us, so does the question, do I practice a status quo faith or a revolutionary faith in Jesus? And what does revolutionary faith look like? It looks like generosity 
that the world cannot comprehend. It looks like people whose values are shaped by a love for the people who Jesus loves. The ones he calls the least of these, my brothers and sisters, the very people whose society neglects and often considers a burden. The, the revolutionary faith means that we look around us and we ask what corners of our community look least like the kingdom of God. And then we invade them. We invade them with love and with service and with peacemaking and kindness and generosity and with compassion. And we commit to becoming a transformational place and people in those places. Being a revolutionary people means that we boldly proclaim those subversive words, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord, which implies that Caesar is not. Jesus is Lord, which implies that the rulers of his day are not. Jesus is Lord, and all the kings, rulers, czars, presidents, and emperors of our world are not. And most importantly, it means that our lives can match our proclamation. We live in service to a revolutionary king. A revolutionary faith means that our desires begin to match the desires of Jesus. It means that we desire peace, and we give our lives to becoming peacemakers. It means that we desire justice, and we give our lives over to pursuing justice for the poor or the widowed, the immigrant and the orphan, those who the Old Testament repeatedly voices concern about. It means that we remember that justice is always restorative and never retributive. Revolutionary faith means wanting what Jesus wants instead of what the world wants or what we would want left to ourselves. We're not removed from selfish temptation. We are not removed from the pull to live for ourselves or to keep status quo, but we are called to something greater, and in Christ we are empowered to something greater. Sometimes what the world wants isn't about silver and gold. It's about having permission to hold on to our grudges or to act out of our fears or even to define good and evil for ourselves. We're also not removed from a temptation to share in the sin of Adam and Eve. We still want to define what is good for ourselves and live in ways that are ordinary rather than ways that are revolutionary. You see, this revolutionary faith isn't an optional component of faith in Jesus. It is a call that Jesus places on each of his followers. That is our purpose. This is what we are here for. As salt is intended to keep meat from rotting, we are intended to be the presence of Jesus in a world that left to itself would go bad. As light illuminates the darkness, there are certainly dark places in our world. We are called to enter those dark places of our world with good news, with the light of the gospel proclaiming, Jesus is King. Jesus is Lord. Jesus stands before this crowd at the beginning of his ministry and he says, I am what the law and the prophets have been pointing to. I am the fulfillment of all that you have hoped for. I am the solution to all the world's pain and everything that is broken is being restored in him. And you are invited to know and experience that same restoration. You are invited to join the revolution. That is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Will you pray with me? Father, we pray this morning that you would give us a revolutionary faith. 
that we would not be content with the way things are, either in our own lives or in our world, but we would be all in for you. That you would be the one desire of our heart and that we would pursue you above all else. Give us a revolutionary faith, we pray, Lord. Not an ordinary faith, not an everyday faith, but a revolutionary faith. A faith that craves you and that craves your kingdom and that surrenders ourselves entirely over to you. Father, we pray that we would respond to your call to be salt and to be light by saying yes. Yes, Lord, use me. Use me to bring healing. Use me to enact justice. Use me to make peace. Use me to bring the dark corners of your world to the light, to bring light to the dark corners of your world. And Father, whatever is in our lives that is just maintaining the status quo, or whatever is in our lives that is broken or unsurrendered to you, give that to you now, Lord. As we repent of broken ways of living, of harmful attitudes and damaging words, and pursue instead the kingdom of God. We love you, Lord, and we pray that you would do a new work in us in order that you might do a new work through us. And that as we are transformed, you would use us to bring transformation. And we thank you, Lord, because you are ever faithful, always loving. You are our God and King. And we love you, Lord. Amen. Mm -hmm.